All right, let's get into our subject for tonight. Um, as we talked about or briefly, uh, this is a new journey. This is a beginning of something that I really feel is very serious. And it's important that you understand when we talk about the Book of Glory, what that really means, and why are we only going to be studying half of John's Gospel, chapters 13 through 21, that is the second half. All right. There's some practical reasons. For one thing, we couldn't really do justice to John's Gospel in nine weeks if we tried to. And to go longer uh, is just sort of impractical. The other way <clears throat> is if we started from the beginning of John's Gospel and went through the end, um, even if we started at the beginning of January and went to whenever it ended, that would be somewhere around April or May, long past Easter, which is, I think, the 4th of April, um, and you would be through the Easter season before we would get to the com uh, comparable parts in John's Gospel. So what we're trying to do here is to really take the essence of John's Gospel, the Book of Glory, and get into that in depth, all right, because it is so important. All right. Now, what do we mean by the Book of Glory? Well, if any of you open up your Bibles, you will see, uh, if it's a, a recent edition, you will see that it will say that it is the Book of Glory, right here. All right? The Book of Glory. Now, what do we mean by the Book of Glory? The word glory in this case is somewhat like the word victory. The word victory implies someone who has been challenged in some way and has come out the victor or come out on top. However, if you use the word victory, that generally implies a single specific event. And this event, the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ, is so important that it really must be recognized as something far greater than just a single event because the benefits apply to all mankind from Adam and Eve down to the last person on earth before the end of time. And so it warrants a much more lofty title. And so that's what the Book of Glory is. And that's what we were going to be explaining to you as we go through this nine-week session. <clears throat> John's Gospel is different from the other three. If you've studied any of the other Gospels, you will understand that, in essence, they tell pretty much the same story, but from a different point of view. Let me briefly review Matthew's Gospel. Well, let me start with Mark's Gospel. The reason most of us 
most Bible scholars will start with Mark's gospel is because that is the first one that was written. It is the briefest of gospels because it was intended to capture the essence of the sayings of Christ while he was here on earth and in his public life. It begins at the baptism of Christ. It totally eliminates or ignores uh, the childhood uh, stories that we call the Christmas stories. All right, it begins with the baptism of Christ, and it is very brief. There's very little detail. Uh, it is just one uh, major event uh, after another. And it is the first one that was written. <clears throat> Matthew's gospel, as well as Luke's gospel, takes Mark's gospel and then embellishes on it from their point of view for their own reasons. All right. Matthew brings the Jewish element into the gospel and describes all of the events in terms of how they were prophesied by the Old Testament. And as you will read through Matthew's gospel, quite often he will end a, a given scene by saying, and this was done or this was said to fulfill what so-and-so said back in the Old Testament. It is intended, Matthew's gospel was intended uh, to convince the Jewish people of his time that Christ was the Messiah that had been looked for uh, for centuries by the Jewish people. Luke's gospel, on the other hand, was written from a Greek non-Jew point of view. And Luke wrote that more or less as a history, right as it says right up front. I've looked over all of these things that you've heard about, and he's talking to or writing to a person by the name of Theophilus, probably a benefactor or somebody who uh, commissioned him to do this. And he is writing from sort of a historical point of view, but he interjects a lot of his own personal views. Uh, Luke was a Greek. Uh, he is not concerned with a lot of the, the Jewish uh, nuances uh, of Jewish faith. And so he is trying to then promote and you might say evangelize uh, the gospel, that is the teachings of Christ, to the Greek world. John's gospel is entirely different. John's gospel comes from a man who lived a long life. He was a young man at the time of Christ but he lived to almost the end of the first century. He taught, he established uh, home churches. Uh, he was in prison for some time. He wrote many other things. But when it came time to write his gospel, after meditating and praying on his own experiences with Christ, and thinking about them over the years, and after reading the other gospel writings, as well as the writings of Paul, then John puts his own thoughts and 
uh, in using current journalistic uh, terminology. He puts his own spin on the ideas that he is wanting to present. The other three present their Bible from the point of view of a man who turns out to be God. John does the opposite. This is God who comes to earth in the form of man to teach us the way back to the Father. He begins right up front in the prologue to the Gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's stating right up front that Jesus was God. Let's look at it that way. And that's what I want you to look at it that way. When you read the other Gospels, particularly Matthew, you sort of have to go through all of this uh, story before you really realize that Matthew himself has figured out and believes that Jesus is God. And that really doesn't come until close to the end of his gospel. Whereas John tells you, boom, right up front, Jesus is God. And why did he come to earth? That's the point we start. Why did he come to earth? There was a specific reason, a commission and a mission for Christ. And that is what we are going to be studying about over the next nine weeks. Okay. Now, because we call the second half of the book of the Gospel of John, the book of glory, most people will say, well, what's the first half called? Anyone know? The book of signs, yes. And that sounds strange, but what does a sign do? Doesn't a sign point out something, some message of some kind? All right. The book of signs. John does not use the word miracles. He talks about the stories that relate what we would call a miracle as a sign because even though he uses only seven of the miracles that Christ worked, he admits at the end of the gospel that there were a lot more. But he takes these particular seven miracles and wraps a story and a teaching around them. So if you look at each one of these stories, there is a message along with each one of them. Uh, there is a technique that John uses. For example, he will start out by, let's take the story of Nicodemus coming to visit Christ and wanting to know more about Christ's teachings. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, one of the ruling classes, part of the Sanhedrin. And it says in the Gospel that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Now, 
why would John make that comment? Who cares whether he came at night or day or morning or when? It's because John sticks in these little comments and he has a totally different meaning than what we would think about. When he says that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, John is implying that Nicodemus came to better understand. Nicodemus was without understanding. And in some cases, he even implies that night is equal to evil. Well, we know that Nicodemus was a good man because he's also mentioned at the end of the gospel of one of the men who took Jesus down from the cross. So we are looking at this as Nicodemus is coming out of concern, out of wonderment, out of lack of understanding and wanting to understand John a little, I mean, Jesus a little better. So he starts out by a question and Jesus gives him a statement. But that's the end of Nicodemus. It goes on from there. So Nicodemus is only used in this case uh, to begin a story, to get your interest. And then it goes on from there in the form of a teaching. Take the story of the woman at the well. Now, neither of these are miracle stories, but they're stories, again, to point a way to something far greater. The woman at the well. This is a Samaritan woman. And she comes in the middle of the day to draw water from uh, Jacob's well. Uh, Jesus meets her there because he's on his way to Jerusalem and his uh, apostles and disciples went off to, to get some food, right, and buy some so forth. And he begins a conversation with this woman. Now, that's a big no-no in this time and culture. A man would never speak to a strange woman, much less a Samaritan woman, uh, out in public. But Jesus ignores a lot of those conventions and starts a story with this lady. Uh, and apparently she's had quite a reputation, and um, she tells him so, because he says to her, why don't you get your husband and come back? And she says, I have no husband. And he says, uh, rightly said, in fact, you've had five husbands, and the person you're living with now isn't your husband either. But historians tell us that that can be looked upon in two different ways. Simply as the story as in its face value, but in a totally different way as well. Because if it looked is looked upon as an allegory, the woman represents Israel. The whole of Israel who's had a sordid story like the five husbands that are mentioned there were Egypt, Babylon, Medes, Persians, Greeks, and the person that she is now cohorting with, with the Romans. So John takes a lot of these things 
and you can look at them from a normal earthly way, and then you can look at them in a spiritual way. So we have to deep, dig deeply into all of John's words to really find out what is he really talking about. And that's what we're going to be getting to over this uh, nine-week session. All right. Father Liam mentioned uh, that there is a lot of love. In your handout, in the back page, if you'll take a look at it <clears throat> just quickly. There's a diagram there on what is love. Most people are so tired of hearing the word love from the pulpit and from other Catholic uh, places. Let's leave, leave it at that. All right. But how many of you really understand the biblical meaning of love? So we're going to be getting into an in-depth understanding of Christian love. All right? It has nothing to do with liking something. Liking is an emotion. Love is a decision. Think about that. And next week, we will take that subject up because it is a very important element in next week's um, lecture and the subject matter, chapter 13 of the Gospel of John. All right. Love pours out through all of the words, but you don't see the word love actually used, and yet it's there. And that's why we, you really have to look deeply into what it's all about. What is John really saying? Right? Like the woman at the well story, is he talking in allegorical form or is he just talking to a strange Samaritan lady that he shouldn't have been speaking to in the first place? And all of the chapters at the rest of the Gospel of John are partly that way. Right? Yes, they talk about many of the same things that the other Gospels do. One thing they don't talk about in these chapters is the institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper. You don't hear any of the words that we use at, or the priest uses at Mass, uh, do this in memory of me with the bread and the wine. Right? That is not in any of the last chapters of John's Gospel. That's in chapter 6. There's a reason for that. Right? But all of John's Gospel or at least the first chapters 13 through 17, take place in the scene of the Last Supper. Now, you can bet your bottom dollar that not all of this was said at the Last Supper, but uh, this is the way John presents it, because it is in the solemn occasion. Now, a Last Supper was essentially the Passover meal, Many books say that it wasn't the Passover meal, it was the, the evening of the preparation. But remember, the Jewish Passover goes from midnight, I mean, from sun, 
sundown of one night to sundown of the next night, a 24-hour period, all right? And it can be celebrated at any time during that 24 hours. And that is true even to today. How many of you have been to a Jewish Seder? That is uh, a Passover meal of the Jewish people today. And our Mass is a direct derivative of the Jewish Passover. All right. So we want to bring that in and show you how it all fits together. The Book of Glory, again, as I said, begins at chapter 13, and it is in the scene of the Last Supper. But there are very little elements of what we would traditionally think of or know about uh, a Passover meal. It is mostly teaching. And then they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is arrested. So we experience, um, or John tells us of his experience with watching Jesus through the Last Supper, uh, the Passion, the suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, the arrest and the uh, scourging and severing of Christ, and then his death on the cross. Uh, it ends with his resurrection, which is mentioned very briefly, and then some last-minute instructions before his departure. John's Gospel is also written in such a way that you're almost waiting for more. You want to know, well, what happened next? And John gives us that in an entirely unexpected form in the book of Revelation. His whole idea of looking at Christ in a different way is carried over into the book of Revelation, but that's for another time and uh, another session. The whole idea of Christ coming to earth is summed up in the one word, one word atonement. How much how you really describe what the atonement is? How many people really understand the word atonement? Let me give you a background. When Adam and Eve were first put on this earth, remember Adam and Eve is an allegory. It is a story that is made up from bits and pieces of beliefs, myths, legends, traditions of various people in the Mideast, all the way from Egypt to uh, Mesopotamia, Babylon, the Persians, etc., it was not written until around the 5th century B.C., long after the books of Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. <coughs> it was written to 
bring a beginning to the Bible. And so, since there were no uh, tape recorders, uh, you know, DVDs, uh, cell phones that could take uh, pictures and so forth, who knows uh, where Adam and Eve came from? Who knows what really went on? This is a story that is made up. And I know I get a lot of people who uh, really feel that I'm a heretic by saying that, but that is the general feeling. Uh, and the general teaching of the church that the story, beautiful as it is, wonderful in its description of God the Father as it is, was intended and written for the purpose that we have it as the beginning of the Bible. It is not historically or scientifically accurate and was never intended to be. It was written to give a beginning to the rest of the books of the Bible. All right. Be that as it may. When mankind sinned, whether it was Adam and Eve or Pete and Mary or whatever, it makes no difference. It created a barrier between God and mankind, God's creation. Before mankind sinned, and this is depicted as Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They had everything that they needed. They had all the food and everything that was really needed to subsist as a human being. The only condition was, and it was the tree in the middle of the garden that they were forbidden to eat or even touch. Now, this is a symbol of boundaries. It is not uh, a trap, you might say. Quite often people will say, well, gee, wasn't that just a trap that God put them in? No, it was a symbol of boundaries. When you tell your children to go out and play, you say, but don't go out on the freeway. You know, it's not a wise thing to do. You're not preventing them from playing, you're just warning them, okay? Uh, <clears throat> when uh, you get into a brand new car, you don't drive on the left side of the street like they do in England. It's not a wise thing to do, okay? And that is not preventing you from driving and, you know, showing off your new car. That's just a thing that people are told to do for their own safety. This is what the Garden of Eden and the tree in the middle was all about. All right. When Adam and Eve sinned through pride, whether it was Adam and Eve or anyone else, makes no difference. The fact is that before sin, mankind, whoever they were, whatever their name was, had direct access to God the Father and would eat and talk and walk and whatever with the Father at their own will. But once sin came along through pride, then God had to separate because a perfect God cannot coexist with a sinful human being. So there had to be a separation, and this is signified by the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. A lot of people will say, 
oh my God, they only ate an apple and they're going to be kicked out of their home? That doesn't seem fair. No, no, there's more to it than that, all right? They disobeyed a direct command of God. That is the essence, and they did it out of pride. Again, that symbolizes all of the sins of mankind down through history. So that creates a barrier. God and mankind have to be separated. But God promises that there will be a reconciliation brought about by a woman and her seed, a woman and her child. Right? Chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. This woman is Mary, the mother of God. And of course, her seed is Jesus Christ. But of course, these people way back in the beginning, or even in the 5th century when this book was written, had no way of knowing that. But through the Holy Spirit, they were inspired to write it this way. And this was their dream and their hope. Now, the whole idea of the atonement, this word up here, is the idea of what can be done to bring mankind back into a relationship with the Father. This sin separated mankind to the point where mankind had nothing that he could give God in the way of a sacrifice, the way of an offering to satisfy or rectify this breach that sin caused. And God knew that front. God knew that there was nothing that mankind could ever do because mankind was a sinful, fallen human being. And a perfect God could not accept that. And so what happens? Out of infinite and divine love, the Father sends Christ Jesus Christ to earth in the form of man to be the sacrificial offering back to the Father to satisfy the reconciliation of mankind to the Father. And that is what we mean by the atonement. First described and explained by St. Anselm in the 10th century. He wasn't appreciated either because he didn't like it that much, but he is now known as the first to really explain it in that way. So it took nearly a thousand years even for the church to fully understand. You see, so if you don't get it the first day, don't feel too badly. The whole idea that we're talking about here is the development from the time of Christ through the apostles 
and their writings that began the teachings of the church. We took the best we could from the Jewish writings and we continued on with the writings of the New Testament. And John's Gospel, along with his first letter, are really the frosting on the cake, you might say, of all of the New Testament writings. Because they talk about the essence of the atonement. Why God became man and brought us back into a relationship with Christ. The other thing that is very important is that Jesus knew right from the beginning what his mission was. And as John explains it, Jesus is always in control. He never, never lets control get out of hand. He is accepting the death and the resurrection for that very purpose. Now, the other side of that is that he's also accepting his death and resurrection out of infinite love. Love, first of all, for the Father and love for mankind. But because he is human, he is made to suffer all of the stress, the emotions, uh, the problems, whatever, that mankind would have to suffer because he truly was a man, a human being. And he had to go through what God would have asked any of us to do to pay back in some ways, and I don't like to use that word, but I want to get it across quickly, to pay back, in essence, what was due God because of our sins. All right. So, excuse me. There is a challenge there. There is a challenge of the will of the Father with the will of the human being. And this is the challenge that Jesus had to face. And he does it so, but without a lot of pain and suffering. But remember, in the Garden of Eden, I'm sorry, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is faced with knowing what is coming. And it is so overwhelming that he's sweating blood which some psychologists tell us is rare, but it is capable. Man is capable of shedding blood uh, under extreme stress. But he's so tied up in the will of the human side against the will of the divine side. But at the end, through the grace being poured into him by the Holy Spirit, he says, not my will, but thine be done. And then goes out and continues 
to finish his mission. Now, what does all of this mean to us? We are faced with the same kind of challenge. The will of God for us, for each of us individually, versus our own will. Many people don't even want to think about that. And yet, that is part of our human nature. That is part of what we are built with, is this challenge of the human will against the divine will. Many people talk about leaving the Catholic Church and going off and doing uh, their own thing, so to speak. And they are just, you know, filled with the Spirit, but they don't want to do it the Catholic way. They want to do it their way. So that is why we have so many other Christian churches here. I'm not putting them down, because any religion is better than none. But when you move away from what Christ has deigned to give us, then you're moving away from the will of God, Christ being God. And that is the challenge that we are going to be exploring throughout this course. The challenge of our will versus the will of God for each of us as individuals. So as we go through, this is what I want you to keep in mind. The challenge that is, I think, um, brought out so very well in Mark's Gospel chapter 8, verses 34 through 36. Uh, you don't have to, if you want to write just those references down. Uh, but I'll give you a copy of this next week because it is a challenge that each of you must answer by the end of this course. Not to me, not to Father Sherman back there, uh, or anyone else, but to yourself and to God. It says, if anyone would want to come after me, he must deny himself, that is his will, and take up his cross and follow me, that's God's will. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man or a woman to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If any of you know opera, that's the whole essence of the opera Faust. So that is what we're going to be faced with. The challenge that is put forth, not in John's gospel, but in Mark's, but the whole essence of John's gospel sort of reeks with the, the same message. Not my will, Lord, but thine be done. Now we come to the fun part. Your questions.
Anyone have questions? No questions. All right. I must have. Yes, sir. You're brave, but go ahead. As opposed to John and Right. A good question. The question for from this gentleman is, in John's Gospel, as I've pointed out, Jesus is very much in charge and knows exactly what's going on and why. In the other Gospels, the impression, at least this gentleman feels, is that Jesus may not always know that he's God. And I can think of one point exactly that you're probably talking about. But there is a theory, and I personally subscribe to it, but a lot of people do not. In the first 30 years of Christ's existence, before his public life, he did not fully know that he was God. He had to grow up just like the rest of us, experiencing all of life's problems and happiness. Uh, and you can bet that Mary and Joseph encouraged him to read the scriptures uh, to understand the uniqueness of his birth and all of the uh, situations surrounding his birth. But during that 30-year period, many scholars believe that Jesus had to learn little by little of his relationship with the Father. And it wasn't until the baptism when it was all brought together and the Father confirmed it by saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, that is one theory. The other point that I think you're probably referring to is when Christ on the cross says, Stop. I have to stop and think for a moment. Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that uh, what you're kind of thinking about? thinking of um, incidents where he is growing and he's just growing in his realization Well, uh, excuse me if I may interrupt. Uh, at the time the Gospels were written, from the baptism on, Jesus definitely knew he was God, along with being human. He had to know that in order to, first of all, perform the miracles that he did, secondly, to say many of the things that he did, uh, and do some of the things that he, he did. Now, in the reference to 
crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? This is a repeating uh, or a recitation of the Psalm 22. And if you read Psalm 22, which was written two or three hundred years before Christ, the first part of it is a very uh, detailed description of exactly what's going on uh, at the time of Christ on Calvary, down to the casting of lots for his garments um, and uh, many of the other details. What the second part of that psalm is, is a victory speech, which of course is in line with the resurrection. What the what Jesus is really saying on the cross by yelling out or crying out Psalm 22, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? He is saying to the people who are crucifying him, you are fulfilling that particular psalm. Think, people, what you are doing. You are fulfilling that psalm. And I might be dying as a human being, but the second part of that is a victory, a victory song. And that is the same as the Book of Glory. As I said earlier, it could have been rephrased as the Book of Victory, but it isn't a one-time event because the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ is so infinitely glorious that it could only be called the Book of Glory. I hope that helps you a little bit, yes. But from the, you must remember, from the baptism on, there's no doubt that Christ didn't know that he was God. All right? Yes, sir? If we go back to Christ's early years as a preacher, when he appears in the temple and he's discussing uh, things with the, uh, the elders there, uh, and his parents look for him and finally found him and ask what, what he's been doing, where he's been, do you not know that I am about my father's business? Let me remind you, and I've heard that same comment from many people, let me remind you that every firstborn male, Jewish male, could claim God as his father because every firstborn Jewish male was dedicated to the father. And so don't read too much into that particular scene when he's 12 years old. It's a... That's true, but like I said, every firstborn Jewish male at that time and culture was dedicated to God the Father and could be claimed or called the Son of God with a small s. Uh, so you can't read too much into that particular scene. But obviously, as I said a few minutes ago, Mary and Joseph must have encouraged Jesus to search the scriptures to see how 
his unique birth lined up with any of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so there was a very close relationship developing, even though Jesus may not have fully understood all of what was to come, he was beginning to get the idea. Uh, but I still feel that he did not fully know that he was God. Mm-hmm. Yep, that again, though, comes from the encouragement of Mary and Joseph. Obviously, they didn't keep all of the details of his birth secret. They shared it with him and encouraged him to search out the scriptures to understand what that all meant and how it would fit in with his particular life and calling. Yeah. All right. Anyone else? Yes, No, no. The, Catholic, no. the Catholic Church grew out of the, uh, excuse me, for those who may not have heard the question, the lady has asked, is there anything in the Bible that says the Catholic Church is the only true church? And of course the answer is no, because the Catholic Church grew out of the teachings that are recorded in the Bible but it wasn't even called Catholic until much later. You know, when it started to split away from Judaism, it was called the way. After Christ's comments claiming to be the way, the truth, and the life. All right. So it was called the way for many years. It wasn't until much later perhaps the beginning of the second century, that it was began to be called uh, the Catholic Church, or actually the Universal Church at that time, which when translated back uh, from the Greek, became Catholic. That's what the word Catholic means, universal. Right. Uh, so, any other questions? Yes, Steve? Right. Yes. Good point. That's right. But as it says in, uh, and you've made a good point, uh, the human side of Jesus had to learn, just as Steve pointed out. Remember in Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, it talks about how Jesus, though he was in the form of God, set aside his divinity and took the form of a slave or a human being. And that is where we get the theory that for the first 30 years, as that human being, he had to gradually, over a period of time, learn that he was God. All right? 
Now, why do we claim 30 years? In that culture, a person was not considered as an adult for a variety of reasons until they were 30 years of old, 30 years of age. As we do today, we use the age of 21 as an official legal age. You've got to start somewhere. All right. In that culture, it was 30. If Jesus went out and started preaching uh, before that time, people would not have taken him serious. So he waited. He observed the traditions of the culture until he was 30. And then he was baptized by John the Baptist and the Father accepts that and announces that this is my beloved son. So the divinity and the humanity come together, even though they were always, or the, human, the divinity was always there, but the humanity comes together with the divinity in the person of Jesus Christ. It just dawned on me that the age 30 would say that John had only been preaching and baptizing about six months before Christ was baptized. Uh, if you go along with the, that legal age yeah. limit, uh, that's probably correct. Yes. Uh, we don't know for sure. We don't know. But remember, baptism in the form that John presented it was not new to the Jewish people. That had been in existence for some time before both of them. Anyone else? <laughs>